This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by the new Starz series, The Girlfriend Experience, a seductive look inside a world where intimacy comes at a very high cost. Binge the entire season beginning April 10th, only on Starz. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, Matt Zoller Seitz and I are joined by Gerard Carmichael, creator and star of The Carmichael Show. Plus, the American showrunners Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg talk us through last week's big death on the Americans. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Oh, they're coming out! Hey, Maxine, come. Let's stare out the window with the old people. Let's watch as life literally passes us by. Okay, it's a couple, a man and a woman. You got to be clear these days. A young Muslim couple. Muslim, yes, Muslim. They're Muslims. Oh, huh, with the head thing and everything. Mm-hmm. Of all the things they could be, they, they are Muslims. <laughs> this should be very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, look, I, uh... I love how politically correct we're pretending to be. We're in a safe place. No one's listening. We can express how we really feel. Maxine is listening. Well, the truth is, you know, we saw Muslims and we don't know how to react because we don't see Muslims a lot, you know, only on TV and they're usually playing the bad guy. But no one has to feel bad for expressing how they really feel. You know, Gerard is right. This is an opportunity for us to have an open, honest conversation. Mm -hmm. What are they doing in my America? Since its premiere late last summer, The Carmichael Show has been praised for reviving the age of Norman Lear comedies, with its commentary on everything from Islamophobia to cheating to Bill Cosby. Comedian and creator of The Carmichael Show, Gerard Carmichael, joined us in studio to talk about how he chooses his material his hilarious parents, and doing a live show every week. You're working in an older mode on this show, and that's that's one of the things that jumped out about it for me immediately. Mm-hmm. We went through this period where there were a lot of really straightforwardly, like, political, ripped-from-the-headlines sitcoms on the air, like, yeah. really all through the 70s. Yeah. And then suddenly, I don't know what happened, but it's like the, the networks learned a lesson from that, but it was a different lesson, which is we can we can have a toilet flushing and we can have people use curse words yeah but the political content kind of got lost they it it went from heart to tricks Hmm. and and it got it's like anything it's like your favorite genre of music you you, the 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 most dangerous thing that could happen in any art form is the discovery of how profitable it is (laughs) you know it's just it's going to diminish the 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 quality is just naturally going to diminish because when you create with the intention of profit then you fail usually you know rock music created with the intention of, we're gonna reach out and don't get me wrong yeah they're, yeah, they're yeah. always the the backstreet boys <laughs> you know what I mean? like, and they're always that is yeah. kind of a machine it but, is i mean it ultimately runs its course and it goes on so that it's you know with all due respect to the backstreet boys they made a few hits right, <laughs> but but right. but it, but it ultimately kind of just runs its course and it's not uh, a thing that I, uh, uh, that people really connect to that really has a very distinct specific voice 
And so the sitcom, you know, it proved very, very profitable. And and how do we get more ad dollars by by avoiding anything that makes, you know, Charmin say, we're not sure about, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. you, that if you give harmless, you know, content, then you can get all of the ad dollars. <laughs> you know, maybe right. maybe the episode about firing the air traffic controllers is not the best place to sell our you know soap exactly whatever exactly it's like it's like how do we avoid how do we avoid any hint of what they would deem controversy but then you you wipe out character Mm. and you wipe out perspective and that's the most important thing i mean you can't have a character driven show it's like characters are everything in a sitcom and you can't have that with the intention of like and we're gonna get all of the yeah 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 so you're you mentioned character and you know the characters on the show how much of them come from your I, I imagine a lot of it comes from your own family and what I what strikes me so much about the show is the the parental humor that I feel like it's such a hard it's such a hard thing to nail that kind of sweet spot between like parents being like actually legitimately funny yeah and like yeah, yeah. also being embarrassingly funny and yeah. I'm just wondering how you kind of approach that because I don't write them as parents I mm-hmm. write them as people with perspective I talk to my parents on the show the way I talk to my parents in real life. I'm writing an episode about pornography right now and I just called my, I FaceTimed my mom and dad last night I was just like, what do you think, like, how much porn do you watch? <laughs> to my dad, that was just a direct question to my father, like, because I grew up in a household that just kind of always had adult conversations and just real conversations, so right. it, yeah, it gets boring if it's just, I don't want to write, I'm not you know, without respect, leave it to be- Beaver that's been done, I don't need the a lesson every week sometimes you teach your parents lessons that's a real thing you yeah. know there are things that your parents learn from you and the things you learn from your parents just as human beings you know they're there it's a give and take and so i just write to that i wanted to ask you about the generational thing um you are pretty clearly influenced by some of those sitcoms that i've talked about here and on other episodes of the podcast mm-hmm. you clearly could not have watched those in first run like you're too young, right? Just by nature of time and space. <laughs> Where did you find? How did you discover like Norman Lear type sitcoms? Those kind of more overtly political sitcoms. I uh, I grew up just having a uh, watching Nick at Night, and we have VHSs and uh, uh, of just older shows and and a family that had a love for it. And uh, uh, even up until moving to LA, I spent a lot of time at the Paley Center and spent a lot of time in Blockbuster Video and uh, all these things, just different sources of watching All in the Family and Mod and, and Cheers and Murphy Brown and syndicate between syndication and other outlets, I was just able to, to, to take in all this content. What did those what did those types of shows satisfy in you that, that shows that were currently on the air didn't give you? Uh, a real conversation. A realness to it. You recognize that. You recognize when someone isn't being honest with you. You recognize that. And it, and it's it, because I was in a family that was having honest conversations. I couldn't watch those shows that were just smiley. And because I was like, that's not the dynamic that I recognize. I, I recognize it as false. So when I watched Murphy Brown or when I watched All in the Family, I recognized that. I recognized the truth in that. So I wanted, I wanted to not only watch that, but when it, getting in a position to create a show, I wanted to create that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I also like about the show is there's a lot of sillier moments of, in terms of the humor, like when, when Cynthia singing, is singing Ava Maria, like half in gibberish. Yeah, 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 <laughs> like, just running out of... And just like, because it's all... I'm sorry to cut you oh, off. Oh, no, please. It's all ahead. to break tension. Mm-hmm. It's all it, the the I I don't mind getting like silly and fun if it's balanced 
because moments before her singing Ave Maria in gibberish is is uh, David Allen Greer talking about uh, his father choking his mother until the life almost left her body. This is this exists right. within minutes of each other. So because of that, it's like, you know, I don't want everyone to just be sad every week. So it's like right. you break that tension with fun moments. So like I, I'll allow those moments when we have the other moments. You know what right. I mean? Like it, it, it no, needs it, balance. It helps. Those are the moments when I, I legitimately laugh out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, because I mean, we just taking you to a valley yeah right <laughs> you know right. like we just take you to a valley i mean i was standing there watching david in the scene almost cried just watching david david had tears in his eyes and in, in this scene in a sitcom so it's just like let's you know let's let the air out a little bit like you know like, let's have let's have a little fun now like yeah. let's break the tension i had read you were you were talking about working with david allen greer and loretta divine and you talked about how they get so consumed by their characters and absolutely sometimes they might come up to you and be like this doesn't feel like something my character would do i watched her early in the uh in the first season we were eating popcorn on the set and people uh spilled it and i watched loretta divine go around the living room set and pick up every piece of loose popcorn. <laughs> and I said, Loretta, what, what are you doing? You know, there are people who actually are paid to to do that. And she's like, Cynthia doesn't keep a messy house. Wow. wow. This is rehearsal. <laughs> Mind you. This isn't even this isn't during the scene. We're not taping. This is rehearsal. It, it's it's a genuine commitment. Like like to watch Loretta Divine get angry at me as my mother <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. as a yeah. you know no cynthia doesn't do that she has one of the great voices in sitcom history maxine what a risque dress that is for such a somber occasion oh it's just it's my first funeral so it's hard to find a dress on short notice well you got the short part right <laughs> i'm sorry i'm just lashing out it's been a hard few days since joe's father died it is a short dress, though. Yeah, you could hear like two syllables of it and go, Loretta. It's immediately recognizable. <laughs> yeah, it's immediately recognizable, and it's fun, and and just it. She's it's a song. Just about that point of you know them, you talking about what is right for their characters, and I think in what I was reading, you were saying that you know sometimes what you write for them it is real because it's from your personal experience. Mm -hmm. How do you negotiate that? Are there ex is there any, or have there ever been instances where they're like this doesn't feel right. And you're like, well, it is true because it's something that I have experienced. Yeah, I lean toward truth as much as possible. A lot of times, you know, for, for the sake of, you know, for your family, you know, they, they, while they're very excited to, you know, have the characters play them, uh, you know, respecting uh, privacy. And so I don't just, it's not just a, a like a diary version of it. What I what I really try and stay true to are the intention and the the. Uh, who these people are, the core of their their, their character, like in real life, I, I try and stay true to that as much as I can. Uh, but with story, we you take liberties and and, mm -hmm. and craft things, you know, around that perspective. Speaking of that, uh, years and years ago, I interviewed John C. McGinley when he was on Scrubs. Oh wow! And he talked about how uh, I said, "Why is it that you are routinely given like these two-minute-long monologues? Yeah. That sometimes you have to deliver while you're standing on your head, or you're you're yeah. holding a mop bucket in one hand, yeah. and, like a cheetah in it the other, so, or something." It was so great. And he said that's because the first time the writers wrote something for me on a dare, it's like, "Let's see if John can pull this off," and I pulled it off, and then it just began to escalate. Oh yeah. And I and I think about that every time I watch a sitcom that's very much driven by the personalities of particular performers, and I think. 
you know, when you're writing the show, is there any time where you think, I just want to see David do this? There's a whole nother series that could just be rants that I've written for these characters. <laughs> just, there's an entire series, and we give a lot. And, you know, when you have such great actors, sometimes David or Loretta or, or Amber or my doc, like, is like literally like a page and a half of just us talking. And we have to cut it out either in script or in editing sometimes just by nature. They, I'll write an entire... There there have been legitimate like entire pages where it's just like, and this is just you talking. Full Sorkin. Full Sorkin. <laughs> just like, and you're just going to talk. Because that's, that's what happens in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it sounds. It's all jazz music, you know, and like sometimes the trumpet just plays right. for a couple minutes. Right, right. You know, and then yeah. no drum, no anything. And then then you bring in other instruments. I was reading an interview with Emily B. Gordon, who wrote yeah. uh, the Islamophobia episode, She's and great. she was mentioning how the writing team works very much in a as a group. It's like a group effort, but then you will come in and add your Gerardisms. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what a Gerardism might be. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I think I have a, a I guess a specific voice or distinct voice, and uh, and so I can hear the characters really really well, and and. You know, the room is great with helping craft intention. And uh, I'll just hear, it's kind of like a song. There are certain, there are certain like entire like scenes that it, it really will just come to me. Like just the entire scene will come to me. The cold open of uh, the Fallen Heroes episode, for instance, how that was written was literally just one take. I, I remember just having the idea, saying it, and uh, Ari, who I write with, writing it out just all and it didn't change from initial spark to exactly that and so sometimes when i see a thing clearly it's just i just that the obligation to put it into whatever episode it's like you're taking dictation almost yeah from your subconscious (laughs) exactly It, it is exactly that you it's like some of my favorite things are just kind of exactly how i heard it in the shower like mm. exactly right i i read you have a dry erase board in your shower I where do. you write I down dry, ideas yeah I, I have a dry erase board in my shower uh that uh you know i'll just kind of pace around and i'll jot down a thing and i'll go sing a song and i'll go back and do it <laughs> it's a concert slash writing session when did you come up with that idea was that a response to like having to repeatedly get out of the shower and write things down yeah i would it's it's from uh ruining uh notebooks by just soaking it I would like run out and like just wet hand just on a notebook, just bleeding through pages. And then I couldn't read certain things because it would just bleed through the page behind it or whatever. And I was like, well, that's not really going to work. And so I just I got to dry erase board. Hmm. Smart. Yeah. Is that where most of your ideas come from? I mean, it's like the only time I'm genuinely alone. Right. And, you know, it's it's a it's meditative. You know, you're you're able to uh, your meditation in some capacity is important, and uh, uh, especially now I I I don't get just by time and work I don't get to just kind of just walk around. I would go on like really long walks a lot, and I don't get a chance to do that as often. So the shower is kind of this window where I get to just be alone and I kind of just think I'm always fascinated by the process like the physical process of writers yeah because it seems like everybody has their own rituals just like actors do when they're preparing for a part yeah what are, what are some of your habits like do you do you type do you write first and then type do you type first do you work alone and then with a I partner I have to write I see it's very I, I have to see it as a whole and uh 
just walk around and just kind of wait for it. Uh, uh, Duke Ellington had this uh, quote about his process about absorbing the day. Hmm. And he would say, not even with the intention of creating a song, he would just walk around the city and he and he would just sit in the lobby sometimes and a maid would vacuum and he would just kind of listen to the sound of vacuum cleaner. And then as soon as he worded it, as soon as you lay your head to the pillow, that's when it comes and then you just write it all down. I was reading an interview with an old Frasier writer where mm-hmm. he was describing the writer's room on that show and he said it was a very quiet room because... No one wanted to say an idea unless it was the perfect idea, because otherwise you would be harshly judged. <laughs> I was wondering yeah. what the feeling is like in in your, how you would describe your writer's room. I go in and out, but just because uh, it is a lot of times I need to sit and think, you know, and so I may go to my office or stay on set. I, it, the the silence is is important to me because it's a uh, it's the reason. Like at my best, I'm not on Twitter. I receive every piece of information and everything equally. So I have to be cautious of, of how, like, if I'm really trying to be creative, I have to be cautious of it. So, for instance, like, my friend uh, tweeted a picture of him smiling and said, Abilify. <laughs> just hashtag Abilify. He credited Abilify for the smile. And, and I've been thinking of, like, that just repeats on me all day. And I receive it. Like, watching a movie at home, I'm the worst because I have to pause and I take it in. Reading a book, I read it. And my sister does this as well. We, re- we start at random places and we just <laughs> read around and we just read in sections. And it's this weird way of... Re- non-linear way of receiving content but the, mm-hmm. i receive everything equally so in the writer's if i hear an idea like if it's too many coming in i'm receiving it all equally and it, it and it kind of it can sometimes create clutter so i per, from a personal place i have to go away and perspective is key so i'll write with uh my friend ari a lot and and we you know we've spent literally just two days discussing how we feel about a thing like just 48 hours of barely sleeping of just ask just talking through a topic wow. not even necessarily the story but really trying because the once again perspective is currency and so I, I think i owe it to the audience to really to really have some type of true unique perspective in every episode and everything that i do and stand up in the show and so finding it and making sure that it is like perspective that i feel some type of attachment to and that it is that is unique mm-hmm. is important so you have to kind of get away from that, uh, to to have that it has to be conversation you can't just be throwing ideas has there been an episode where that's been particularly intense this type of back and forth between you and ari uh yeah it's it's uh at our best, it is an argument in, in, in its best sense, you know, when we're talking about infidelity or we're talking about you know, Fallen well, Fallen Heroes is kind of based on a, we based it around a stand-up perspective that I had. But that that was actually based off a conversation I had with Ari years ago of just talent versus morals. And it was just like a conversation of just like, but we forgive this, but we don't forgive that. And just finding these gray areas. And uh, like the bigger the argument, the better. It, it serves us all because it's like a genuine argument. So it's real perspective and it's really how you feel. In these arguments, are you, are you both feeling like very... Uh passionate about one particular viewpoint or are you trying to play devil's advocate so you get it different? sometimes both sometimes both what's what's interesting what's great about comedians and, and what i love about us is, is is our ability i think it's i mean as close to and i don't want it to sound inflated in any way but i genuinely think it's as close to plato and socrates as you get it's questioning the best comedians are able to question and remove ourselves 
from emotion a lot of time and just really question and analyze and thing. And then sometimes you just feel passionate about a thing and you just then you yell. And so it can come from either mm-hmm. or. But uh, the ability to just question things, we're just able to discuss it and figure it out and, and just get to the bottom of things. Sounds lo- so enlightened. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that uh, the Cosby episode. And one of the reasons I loved it is because now instead of when I whenever discuss this issue, like that sort of moral relativity with regard to artists where there are certain people, I'll, ne- I'll never give that person another dime of my money. Yeah. And there are other people who I would think if you could stand back from it, you could say they are equally bad, just the details are different. Yeah. And those people are beloved. And it's like, why do you love this person and not that person? I stopped discussing this on social media because people got so angry at me. And it's mm-hmm. like, I'm not trying to devalue the crimes of this one person. Yeah. I'm legitimately interested in why you can still see Woody Allen movies but you think Roman Polanski is the devil exactly you know things like that like I actually want to know the answer to this yeah. now I don't have to go through that whole process I can just say just watch this episode <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm glad I could contribute to that I'm yes. like genuinely glad I could contribute to that because that's so important to be able to analyze I mean I think that your friendships and your life should be kind of designed to look like Lincoln's cabinet it, it should just be <laughs> a bunch of people that just fundamentally disagree with each other arguing until you find truth and whatever truth is or the gray area or lack thereof but at least genuinely exploring and don't get me wrong it's not once again you're not devaluing anything you're not you have to handle these things with integrity because especially when it's, you know, dealing with some type of accusation or something, you don't want, like, you know, there are victims a lot of times at sex, so you don't want to trivialize it in any way or be dismissive in any way, but you do need to get to the bottom of certain truths. And you and the only way to do that is to explore, objectively explore. And, you know, for people that are able to do that, you, you can come up with some really interesting content. Yeah, all this Cosby stuff is really starting to depress me. It needs something to cheer me up. Hey, Siri, play the Cosby show. <laughs> Just one more time, you know, for old time's sake. Wait, which episode you gonna do? Could you pull up the one where Rudy Goldfish died and they did a funeral for it? No, I'm gonna do the Monopoly Money one with Theo. No, 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 it's my anniversary. I want to see them dancing on the stairs. Oh, or the Gordon Gartrell shirt. Wait, no, 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 the... do the Thanksgiving episode where he teaches Theo how to carve the turkey using that Julia Child oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> now, the first thing you do is you got to grab the turkey and, and make the cut all the way down to the freaking frame. <laughs> Uh, damn shame what he did to those women, though. Uh, I'm curious how you decided, um, how you went about hiring for your writer's room in terms mm-hmm. of the different perspectives you wanted to have represented. So that just to get yeah. at this kind of sense of truth, did you try to get people from different backgrounds to try and bring their different perspectives? I mean, it, for me, it was just important. The conversation during our initial meeting was very, very uh important my first question to a a lot of the writers is what's the last thing you hated Uh, i Mm. like to ask that question uh because uh i found that that makes you immediately you have to be you have to be honest there's you have to be vulnerable to be able to answer that especially within within the industry you know if you if Mm -hmm. you're in a meeting with someone in 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 television you say what's the last tv show you hated i mean it's it's all such a small world that you're immediately (laughs) just by the nature of that question you're vulnerable you're gonna someone's friend works on the thing right you don't know what connection whatever but you just have to find a place of truth because that's that's coming from a place of true passion that's very interesting my son wrote that oh look at the time yeah exactly (laughs) but i've been in studios and production companies and and i've said and they've asked me and i'm like oh that last thing you did i didn't like (laughs) 
Because we have yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Right, there right, has to right. be on- Especially if it's going to be collaborative. And not only that, you have to be honest about your your feelings on things because you need to establish what you believe is good and what you believe is bad and why you think that way. And you can't, you have to go beyond the politics of it. And, and I mean, sometimes I probably sound horrible when I'm just like being very honest about my views on certain shows or certain things, but it needs to be said to make it clear because we need to, as a room, move toward one goal. And, and, it, and so the only way to do that is to establish, you know, uh, certain parameters. It still seems like you come at this from the standpoint of a performer first, like that's your avenue into it. Am I right about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I know as a viewer even. Yeah. Because I know, you know, you want your ear to still be in tune with what, what how America is going to receive or how the audience is going to receive a thing. So you, you know, as a viewer, as a as a listener, you you are kind of right toward that, you know. Uh, writing the show, it's like I, I I would I always joke that I'm just trying to get my mom to stop washing dishes, <laughs> you know, because I she would watch certain things and like she would hear we would always had the television on and certain things would just make her just like you hear the water stop and then she would just walk into the room and was like what what did I just say? You've talked about the specific physical qualities of the human voice. You've talked about jazz. You've mentioned Duke Ellington twice. Talk to me about music oh, as music? it relates to your art. It's everything. Everything yeah. is jazz. Everything is jazz. It's chaos amid structure. It's freedom amid conforming to a certain rhythm. It's a contradiction, you know, that exists to make something beautiful. My favorite artists make me think. It 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 requires a a second listening. Like if you don't make something that requires me to listen again to figure it out, whether it's you know if you're listening to to Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, right. you listen to Thelonious Monk. You you can't figure out those chords. You you need to listen again. It it's crazy. It's like they, did Dave Brubeck really do that and take five? Wait, when do those drums come in again? Like it's not on a it's not on a very specific rhythm. It it seems subject to whim, but it's all planned out at the same time, and it it is this contradiction. So the best music, my, my favorite, uh, rap, I love Jay-Z. Jay-Z requires me, I need to go back and listen to what he said. And I, I've had discussions about things that he said. And I've said, well, what, is, what do you think he means by that? You know, it, it, the best art sparks that. I've heard it said uh, that uh, composition is uh, improvisation slowed down and improvisation is composition sped up. Ah. And it sounds like that's what that's, you're talking about here. Yeah, that like you're talking beautiful. about that chaos and that idea that in jazz, in rap, in a lot of forms of music, in stand-up comedy, people don't see the writing, mm-hmm. and they think that because something's not written down and then executed, that it's not really written. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. there's this whole like it sounds like you're saying there's a whole spectrum. Yeah, of the, of that, like it's writing, it's improvisation, but they're kind of the same. thing. It's kind of the same thing. You want to appreciate the writing and not think that it exists. You know, like at the same time, it's it's a it is a contradiction in its most beautiful, challenging way. You know, these things existing at the same time. You know, the the when it feels like David Allen Greer, when people say, did he just imp- improv that? And I know it's written and that's great. You know, and then sometimes, and you also like the compliment of, oh, this is well-written when you appreciate the writing. You know, if you hear, you know, a, a, a sonnet, you know, you, right. you appreciate the writing. And so it, it, it's the duality of that. It, it's a, it's what you, you go for. It's what you aim for. And you, you film the show live. and You do yeah. that 
Do you do that twice for the West Coast and East Coast no, audiences? No, well, it, well, it's we we record in front of a live audience. It, it's taped. Oh, and, and then it's yeah, taped. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. and we. But I do uh, two tapings. I do a four o'clock and a seven o'clock because uh, you know just reading about how it was done in the seventies and eighties, and 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 they just stopped and they started putting an audience through um, these five hour tapings. And you can't, there's no way you're getting an organic reaction. And then you, the audience is just trained to laugh at certain pauses mm -hmm. and you don't get true reaction. So it was a thing that, you know, NBC was just like, I mean, yeah, I guess we could. It, no one just people just weren't doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just wanted to do that because then you then you also have an hour in between where you're like you you get to pause and step back and think about it. Well, what did we just do? What needs to change? Then you can let it breathe instead of it just being this one long continuous thing. So um, we, we do two tapings of uh, four I and see. seven. Yeah. So do you do a lot of does a lot change in those hours between it the depends. two tapings? It depends. You you it definitely just something about that performance you get to see. Uh, it, are there holes in perspective? Are there holes in the plot? Does something feel like it's missing? Is there something needed? And, and you get to just find that in, in, in that hour. You lose the ability to make everything perfect. Every like every line reading, every shot. Yeah. In a way that, you know, you would be able to perfect it if you were doing a one camera sitcom that didn't have an audience. It was basically like a little movie. Yeah. You could do you could even go back and reshoot that one shot that wasn't right or yeah. dub something. And here it seems like you know, you're losing that but you're gaining something else it's natural it's real right. i mean i was on a set uh and in between takes it was a single camera set and in between takes every actor i just saw the phone come out right and you saw them texting and you saw them what what just seems like passing the time is completely killing momentum and it's completely killing chemistry and if you think that that doesn't show then you're crazy huh. <laughs> because it does it, all those moments count. And and the, the benefit of I have an amazing cast that genuinely uh, listens to each other. David Allen Grist says, it, you know, in a prayer before every episode, like, let's genuinely, li which is a fundamental of acting, but so easily forgotten in, in a land of, of single cam where it is. You can, that chemistry shows on every set. It shows. You what is this prayer? Uh, we just gather before every before every taping, and we just got we just hold hands, we'd say a prayer, and it's you know, and we just go out there and give it our best shot. <laughs> you have accidents when you shoot that way that probably seem like you meant to do it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's natural. It's real. We're trying to hold on to truth, so let's give them something real. Coming up, we'll talk to the showrunners of The Americans, but first, a word from our sponsors. Support for the Vulture TV podcast comes from the Stars series The Girlfriend Experience, a new drama from executive producer Steven Soderbergh. Riley Keough stars as Christine Reed, a second-year law school student who is introduced to the seductive world of transactional relationships, providing emotional and sexual intimacy at a very high price. Juggling two different lives, Christine quickly finds herself attracted to the rush of control and power, but soon realizes that everything comes at a cost. Binge the entire season beginning April 10th, only on Stars. The American showrunners Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg recently stopped by the podcast to talk about the show, and we got them to expand a bit on episode four's Big Death, which, spoiler alert, stop listening if you haven't watched the episode yet. Uh, and if you have, they will be explaining why they chose to kill Nina the way they did. 
Приговор «Смертная казнь» оставлен без изменения и будет приведен в исполнение в ближайшее время. So, holy shit. <laughs> I can't believe you killed her. It happened. I can't believe you killed her. For four years, people have been saying, when's she going to die? It was and funny. Really, if, oh, sorry. I was going to say, it was funny. The first season, uh, we just kept watching the tweets and the and the blogs, and everybody said, this is it. Next week, next week, we're, we're you know, Nina's done, Nina's done. And we would look at each other and say, we have so much story to tell. And, uh, yeah, we finally got there. You really twisted the knife, too, with the dream sequence right before. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, man, that was beautifully done, though. How, how, how did you decide to, to frame it that way? Like, what, what, what went into that thinking? With the dreams? Mm-hmm, with the dream followed we knew by we the... Want, we knew we wanted to do a series of dreams, and we had a rough idea of what they might be, and then they expanded to a ludicrous degree, <laughs> and then were completely reconceived. We got simpler and, and simpler. And got, yeah. Dreams are tough. It's hard yeah. to do you know, convincing and interesting dreams and they can easily be so sort of cliche and false. Mm -hmm. So we tried to keep them very simple. You do the kind of dreams on the show where you don't maybe don't immediately know they're dreams. Yes. Mm. Well, that's the way dreams are, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Well, some. (laughs) The good ones. But, you know, we we read a book about a Russian spy who was run by the French, uh, codenamed Farewell, and we got to the part where they talked about how he was executed and this was all information that came out after the fall of the Soviet Union, so nobody knew about it for years. And it was really one of the most interesting things I think we've read in the whole history of this show because the Soviets, incredibly enough, had come up with this method of execution that was very carefully designed to spare the victim any suffering. They, as, as angry as they might have been at these traitors, they didn't want them to suffer. They felt it was more humane if the person was surprised. And so we tried to shoot huh. this sequence detail for detail exactly how it was described in this book, which was written by a consultant of ours. And so all those things you see in how Nina was, was killed is very realistic. Wow. That, I mean, and just the way, the language in that scene, how every line is just brutal. You will be... What, what, what Your sentence they say? will be carried out immediately. Shortly, immediately. Yeah. 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 I think he says that shortly. Shortly. Yeah, shortly. And you're like, uh, by but shortly you mean... It's described yeah. so beautifully in the book, which we just, not just for this section, but the whole book is so compelling. It's Farewell by Sergei Kostin. But he writes about how the, the reports came in that it would always be the same. There would be two guys on either side. And as soon as they said it, the person would slump. They would stand on either side because they knew the person was oh. their knees, knees would the knees loud, would buckle. Yeah. So did she know that? Would the person know that this is a type of execution and that's no, how it, it happened? Kept no, secret. Okay, so that's okay. how they kept elements. That's right. And okay. in fact, you were often moved between cells. So none of this, none of this would be surprising until the moment it happened. That was the idea. And and there was one other beautiful detail, which is. Uh, it came out. There were just a few of these elite execution squads there, and uh, at one point they found out that one of the squads was making uh, the victims kneel before they were executed, and everybody on that squad was fired. They felt that was dehumanizing. That was not the way it was intended to be done. Interesting. Compare this to our system, which is not so humane. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, they weren't really very humane with the families. So there would be, they would just, no information would go out. So let's say you visited your uh, loved one in prison once every two weeks or once every four weeks. You'd show up 
and they would say, uh, you need to you need to go to the, the sixth floor. And then you'd go to the sixth floor, and they'd say, uh, actually, you need to go across the street to the basement file department. And then you'd go and you'd stand on line <laughs> oh. with the file department, and they'd hand you the death certificate. Ugh. And you weren't allowed to know where they were buried either. Yeah. The indignity Why? of Soviet bureaucracy on yeah. top of it all. Right. The structure of this episode is really fascinating to me uh, because you've got several subplots uh, moving along parallel tracks. And one of them is charged with the possibility of murder, which is Pastor Tim. And so the whole time you're expecting Tim's going to buy it. Tim's going to buy it. Somehow <laughs> Tim's going to buy it. If not by an assassin's bullet, by some sort of weird twist of fate or something, but some other <laughs> entirely other character gets killed. Uh, were the you idea ju- of Epcot has never been so ominous. <laughs> no, really, <laughs> really, 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 it's not. This is like this is like the anti-Disney world here. <laughs> Uh, were you just trying to be cruel with the way you structured this thing? I mean, like, it's really like Breaking Bad level knife twisting. Uh, I think we stumbled into that a little bit. Sometimes you sort of structurally stumble into a good uh, a good thing like that. That may be the nicest compliment we've ever gotten. Though, breaking <laughs> Bad level knife twisting. I might have that embossed on something. <laughs> I was hoping to get you to mention the burlap. Well, Sergey, <laughs> Sergey, who wrote that book, which we highly recommend, it's a great read it's a it's got great detail about how spies work but it's also really gripping human drama with amazing twists and turns sergey's been our consultant now and he's provided just invaluable insight into the scripts and the stories and the characters and and the the reality of how things would be on the russian side and we've had this great relationship where we've just been in touch pretty much via email a few times on the phone and we finally met him uh, in person last week, which was great. But we spent a lot of time going back and forth for details on this execution. What would the room look like? It would be tiled so that they'd be able to clean it up. There might be a mop in evidence that the victim might not notice until it was too wow. late, right? Uh, and I don't remember how it came up, but towards the end we said, oh, by the way, would they, how, what would they do afterwards? Would they bring in a stretcher? And he said, no, no, they'd just wrap the body in cloth and there'd be a coroner to confirm the death. And we said, what kind of cloth? And he said, burlap, of course. Like, we should have known that. Why burlap? (laughs) Uh, Easy to bury. Mm. Pick it up, clean, carry out, put it in the unmarked grave. Brutal. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of brutal, Sergey, after he read the script for episode four, sent Joe and I one of the best emails we've ever gotten. You want to tell Joe what he He said? He read the script, and he wrote to us, and he said, you are hard men. <laughs> and it was like basically the greatest moment of our lives. You yeah. know, we're both 50 years old. No one has ever said that we are hard men. To get but it's that all from we really our, wanted to get hear. that from our yeah. Russian, yeah. you know, spy consultant. Russian spy yeah. consultant. Oh, that was a good We were like, well, cred. no, we are not hard men, but, but thank you. <laughs> we rushed home and told our wives. Yeah. They were like, they put us back in our places. We ran, <laughs> ran around the office screaming like girls. We're hard men. We're hard men. You the Russian said it. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, it was a good day. Good day at the Americas. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Sorry about Nina. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. 
I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. Thanks for listening.